It's good to see you guys all this morning. My name is Tony. I have the privilege of leading in this place. Uh, If you are a kid and would like to hang out with some other kids, Miss Trish is back here and she would love to hang out with you. So feel free to hang out with Miss Trish. She's super fun. Now, if you're new visiting and you're not, you know, under four feet and you'd like to hang out in here with us, uh, we're journeying through the Gospel of John. Uh, So you've landed on the perfect Sunday to learn about the cross. Now, most Sundays what we do is we kind of go, uh, I think I'm getting a little feedback through something over here. Um, Usually we go kind of verse by verse through the text. And this Sunday, we're going to do something a little different. So what I want to do this Sunday is ask a very specific question. So why did Jesus actually die on a cross? And what does he actually accomplish by that death? Now, most of us, I think I've heard this before, right? Jesus died on a cross. It's historically, incredibly reliable piece of information. But I can tell you that when I grew up. I didn't attend church a ton. And so when God encountered me and I was in college, I had this profound experience of God that really shifted my whole life. And afterwards, I went and asked everyone I knew that was a follower of Jesus. I said, you know, so what does Jesus accomplish on the cross? And literally every single person told me the exact same thing. Everyone said it just about like this. So, Tony, you are over here. And God is over here. That's shining. That's God's glory. And, um, and there's this separation, this chasm that is between you and God. This is what it means to live east of Eden after the fall, and Tony, there's no way you can separate, get close to God. So what Jesus does by the cross is he provides a bridge. And this bridge allows you, you know, to walk across and be with God. Now, in my naivete, I saw this and I thought, awesome. Like, I've never read the Bible. I'm going to read the Bible. And what I'll do is I'll find where this image is, and I'll like study it. And so I read the whole New Testament, and I was like, I never found it. Like, maybe they just talk about the bridge. You know, they don't have like in the appendix an image, like see also, you know, appendix, the second appendix. So then I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to look in history. Surely this image must be from the very beginning of church history. So I did, right? I looked into church history and I realized, oh, actually this isn't, this diagram doesn't even come in until like nearly 2,000 years into church history. So I started to wrestle with it. I started to read church history. I started to read the scriptures and tried to get a sense of like, so what's going on here? And I think that what the bridge diagram, this is what it's called, does really well is it captures an intuitive level. Everyone lives by canyons. Everyone knows what a a gap in a canyon is like. So people get this, yeah, I can't just like rappel down and climb up the other side. Like there's a gap. What the bridge diagram does is communicate, hey, there's a separation. 
between you and God that you cannot cross. Right? In theological circles, this is called justification. It's actually a really helpful picture of that. Hey, there's a separation between you and God. There's a few downsides, though. A few cons to it. One is uh, that while it communicates separation well, once you get your ticket to heaven on the other side, it doesn't tell you what to do with it. So the goal of this image is to just get to the other side, not what do you do once you get there. Right? So that's the limit of the bridge diagram. In theological circles, what they say is it deals with justification, how do we connect to God, but not sanctification, how we become like Jesus. So what I want to ask this morning is I want to ask, so what does Jesus accomplish by dying on the cross? And I want to do is try and share, to the best of my ability, what I've learned over the last 20 years to answer that question. I think this captures part of it, and it captures it really simply. What I want to do to help us this morning is lean into two things. One, I want to look at history. There's four primary buckets of how theologians throughout history have answered this question of what has Jesus accomplished on the cross? I want to deal with history first. And then I want to deal with the New Testament and particularly the Bible as a whole. And what does the Bible have to say about how do we answer this question of what has Jesus accomplished on the cross? Now, if you're new visiting today, this is not my normal strategy. I don't normally like sort of adopt the seminarian hat and say, okay, how do we do history and New Testament? But I think this is one of those questions that if you're like me, you might have only ever heard this. And I want to take a step back, go into the channels of history and say, hey, actually, very faithful people have addressed, answered this question in different ways. And the New Testament itself actually gives us multiple pictures. So, forewarning, it's going to be a little seminary-ish this morning, but I promise you by the end I will get to the ground of everyday life, okay? All right, so what we're going to start with is a little bit of history. Historically, so there's lots of ways to answer this question, but in the early church, there was one primary way. It was called the ransom theory of the atonement, or Christus Victor. Atonement is how do we become at one with God. Ransom theory, Christus Victor. And there's this guy named Irenaeus, and there's this guy named Gregory of Nyssa, and both of them in the first like four or five hundred years of the church articulate what Jesus accomplishes on the cross in one particular way. They say this, Satan, evil, are holding the world hostage. And Jesus offers himself as a ransom out of Mark 10. We'll get to it in a bit. Jesus says, I have come to offer myself as a ransom for many. Jesus offers himself as a ransom to Satan in order to free us from the power of sin and the power of Satan in the world. Now, this kind of makes sense contextually because in the first three, four hundred years, there's a lot of marauding gangs that would abduct people. And so people in these centuries are like, oh, okay, okay, I kind of get this. Like, I get the marauding gangs, and now I get, like, how we could be held hostage. The problem is, right, this metaphor works really well until Constantine comes into power and the Roman Empire becomes Christian. And then it becomes more awkward to say, since the Roman Empire is now Christian, we are held in the grips of Satan. Right now, that's a little more awkward because now you're talking about the emperor, you're talking about the powers that be. So then, Christus Victor and ransom theory is all out of favor a little bit. And what we see is in the 11th century, you have this guy named Anselm. 
he rises up, and Anselm says things like, no, 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 we're looking at it a little different. And he proposes a thing called satisfaction theory of the atonement. Atonement, how do we become at one with God? At one, atonement. All right, so how do we become at one with God? And he says, well, he lives in a feudal environment. And feudalism works like this. You have a lord, and the lord protects all the serfs, the agricultural workers that work under them. And he says, you know, this is really what happens. This is how we answer this question. He says, you know, God is like a landowner, like a serf, or like a lord of a manor, and his honor is offended. And in a feudal environment, if a serf offends the honor of the Lord, he has to be punished. And he says, hey, this is how it works. We as humans have offended the Lord. And now, the only way who can pay that debt of honor sort of diminished is someone who is both God and man, right? So God becomes a man. He can pay the debt, but he covers the debt of humanity or the serf. And so satisfaction model of the atonement is to say, hey, what does Jesus accomplish on the cross? He pays the honor due God so that the serf and the Lord can be in relationship still. Okay? Now, Anselm has a disciple, uh, one of his students, this guy named Abelard. Abelard, about the same time, he proposes, he's like, eh. you know, he's very familiar with the feudal system. And one of the things about the feudal system is the lords are brutal. And so he says, eh, I'm, not, I'm not super comfortable with this. So what he does is he says, actually, moral influence is what Jesus accomplishes on the cross. He says, you know, it's not really about honor. It's about providing a way to live. And that's what Jesus does by dying on the cross. He provides a way for us to live, a way of self-giving love. Fast forward 500 years, now you have the Reformation. And what happens under Luther and Calvin at this time the feudal system has now gone out of play. You're in the 1600s, right? The feudal system's kind of gone. Now you have states rising. You have independent judiciaries. So now this model starts to shift a little bit. They kind of take Anselm's model and they apply it in their context. Now their context is a courtroom. So they say, okay, God is the judge, right? You have broken the law. You are guilty of sin. What does Jesus do? He steps in, even though you deserve the penalty of sin, Jesus steps in, pays the penalty so that you can go free. Right? So contextually, can you see the shift? You have marauding gangs and Christus Victor ransom. You have a feudal system. You have satisfaction atonement. Right? And you have Abelard and that same thing, doing moral influence. You get to the Reformation. Then you have uh, Calvin and Luther sort of in a state environment with an independent judiciary saying, you're guilty of sin. Hey, this is, functions like a courtroom. Does that kind of make sense? Do you see how that arc goes? And then sometime, I couldn't figure out the exact date, we get to the bridge diagram in the last hundred years. That's sort of the big arc. Then the question is, so what does the New Testament have to say? Like, great, Tony, history's interesting. I'll take a note. But tell me what the Bible actually says. One of the things that's fascinating about the Bible is actually there's lots of ways to answer this question in the New Testament alone. I want to answer three. I want to provide three models that I think are helpful. The first is sacrifice and covenant. It's one of the primary ways that the Bible answers the question of what does Jesus accomplish on the cross? See, the Bible doesn't offer uh, a marauding gang picture, a feudal picture, or a Western courtroom picture. It offers the picture of sacrifice and covenant. Now, covenant 
probably in our world is most closely connected to this idea of commitment, marriage, sort of maybe sort of feels the closest echo. But I remember I was in, a, um, I was in Israel a number of years ago. And one of the fun, fun parts of this trip is I got to hike out into the desert a little bit and hang out with the Bedouin. Now, the Bedouin are really interesting people. They're a nomadic people, so they mirror back to like the time of Abraham. One of the fun things about the Bedouin is if you show up, they will welcome you into their house. Like crazy hospitality, and you know you're not welcome once the sugar starts decreasing in your tea. And I don't like sugar in my tea, so I could literally stay there forever. Um, What I learned, though, at this time is the way the Bedouin marriage ceremony works. So if a Bedouin woman and man are going to get married, what they do is this, just like you would. They take a heifer, a ram, a, a pigeon, or whatever. They cut it in half, and the blood flows everywhere, just like at your wedding. And then what they do is the groom walks through the blood, and he says, may this be done to me if I break this covenant. And then the bride walks through the blood and says, may this be done to me if I break this covenant. And the reason they do this is the Bedouin, they live together as families. So these families marry, they're together. And in order to create a sense of harmony over time, they have to have consequences in their culture for someone if they break the covenant. Otherwise, resentment and violence will spread like the plague. Now, why am I sharing this story? Because I want to take a little trip back to Genesis. Genesis, God makes a covenant with this guy named Abraham. Abraham is a nomadic person. He's called, he's living nomadic, and God makes a covenant with him. And he says, I will form a people out of you, and this people will become a blessing to the nations. And this is what he has Abraham do in Genesis 15. He has him take a heifer. He has him take a ram. He has him take a turtle dove. He cuts them in half, and the blood flows on the ground. Abraham stays on one side. Genesis 15, what it says is that there's a flaming torch that passes through, and then there's like a melting pot. Uh, Let me figure out the exact word. Smoking fire pot and flaming torch pass through. Abraham never walks through the blood. And what's happening in Genesis 15 is that God is saying he will take responsibility for both ends of the covenant if either one of them fail to be faithful to it. Just like the Bedouin marriage ceremony, God is saying he will be faithful to both ends of the covenant. Okay? So then as time passes, there's a sacrificial system set up in Israel. And guess what is sacrificed? The exact same animals that were sacrificed, the covenant that God makes with Abraham. And every 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. for a thousand and even more years, they remember the covenant of Abraham saying, God, will you be faithful to your promise? 9 a.m., 3 p.m., 9 a.m., 3 p.m., 9 a.m., 3 p.m., every day remembering, God, you are the one who said that you would take responsibility for both ends of the covenant. Earlier today, we read about Jesus' crucifixion. 
at 9 a.m., Jesus, after being tortured and humiliated, he is nailed to an execution stake. At 3 p.m., he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he dies. What Jesus accomplishes on the cross doesn't take place in a Western law court. It is grounded in the story of Abraham, the covenant faithfulness of God throughout history that though our hearts wander, though the people of Israel wander, God is faithful to his promise. Both the promise to Abraham and the sacrificial system as a whole exists to restore the relationship of Israel to God and humanity to God. That's the story that the cross is the fulfillment of. And it's grounded in another window that comes up in the New Testament, this idea of relationship and reconciliation. If you read through chapter 5 of Romans, Paul says things like this, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8, Romans 5.10. While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. That what God is hoping to do to accomplish through the cross is to build relationship with us even though we are people that are enemies with God. Even though we say, we're going to do our own thing. God is willing to go on a cross to draw us to himself, to take down all the dividing walls between us and God. That's how Paul frames it in Romans 5. Jesus frames it within a parable. He says this. This is Luke 15. He says, all right, there's, there's a dad and there's two sons. And one of the sons, he's younger, he says, you know, dad, give me my inheritance. And the dad's like, okay, you know, it's kind of insulting. I'm still alive and you're asking for money. And then he doubles down on the insult and now he runs away with the money he's been given. And he spends it on reckless living, is what the text says. He gets to this point, famine strikes, and now he's like, man, I am in trouble. I'm eating the food that the pigs, that I'm not even supposed to be near because I'm Jewish and I'm kosher and I don't eat, you know, don't eat pork. And he's eating wanting to eat the food, the pigs eat. He's like, I'm going to go back to my dad. At least I can be a servant in the household. But he knows in the first century, there's this thing called the Kazaza rule. And it's designed to punish young boys who squander their inheritance. And the idea is this, when you walk back into your town, all the men will come up and they will beat you. Or you will pay back your dad. That's how it works. So he's walking back into town. And what Jesus says is that his father sees him from a ways off and he has compassion on him. Now, a quick word about Middle Eastern men in the first century. Middle Eastern men are dignified. They wear robes. If your son is coming back, you sit in your estate and you sit there sort of proud and ready to receive them in their humiliation. What you don't do is run through the town. That would be, that's what, and no offense, this is just cultural, that is what the mom was allowed to do. The dad, never. What does Jesus say that the father does? 
He sees his son, has compassion, and he runs to him. Now what's happening? All the people that were going to go beat the son because of the Kazaza rule, what is happening? Now they're gossiping about the inappropriate father who is running through the streets. He has shifted the blame. He has shifted the focus away from the sin of the son, and he's taken it upon himself, and they're gossiping about his impropriety. And what does he do? He runs up, and he hugs him, and he kisses him, puts a ring on his finger. He gives him a robe. He gives him shoes because presumably he's barefoot. And he says this, For this my son was dead, and he is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is how Jesus talks about the gospel. He is like a Middle Eastern man inappropriately running through the streets so that we avoid punishment and are reconciled into the family. And then what happens? There's a party. The truth is, I don't know what your story of God encounter was like, but I was not looking for God when God came running to me. When I experienced the kindness of the Father, that is what it felt like. It felt like God the Father ran in and welcomed me with a love that I never thought I deserved. What does Jesus accomplish on the cross? You can look at it in the New Testament through sacrifice and covenant. You can look at it through reconciliation and relationship. You can also look at it through sort of the triad of ransom, exodus, and example. One of the most direct comments that Jesus from his own lips makes about what he accomplishes on the cross takes place in Mark 10. This is his words. Well, in a little context, they're walking along and the disciples are saying, guess what, guys? I'm the greatest. And then the other one's like, no, 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 no. Come on, serious? I'm the greatest. And they're sort of bantering back and forth about who is the greatest. And this is what Jesus says, Mark 10. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. This is the key verse. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus clearly sees his own life in terms of ransom. That he sees the world, us, trapped in cycles of sin, trapped in cycles of addiction, trapped, enslaved, right? And what does he do? He ransoms himself, he gives himself to break the power to set us free, right? This is Romans 5 through 7. This is all about how we are enslaved and Jesus gives himself through the cross so that we can be free. And, he says, I want you to live that way too. I want you to be the kind of people that are not bantering about who's the greatest, but I want you to give yourself as I give myself 
so that other people can experience life. I want you to give yourself so that others can experience life. That's sort of this interesting combination of ransom theory and and Irenaeus with Abelard, right? You're starting to see it. It's like they're all picking one or the other, and there's actually a few things going on here. The connection of ransom theory and giving yourself. Jesus is giving himself to break the power of sin in the world, and he's saying you should live with the same kind of self-giving love. Now, when you set this in the frame of the Exodus, you get a really interesting picture. N.T. Wright says this, When Jesus wanted to explain to his followers what his forthcoming death was all about, he did not give them a theory, a model, a metaphor, or any such thing. He gave them a meal, a Passover meal. Before Jesus dies, when he meets with his closest friends, on the eve of the Passover. And the Passover is a celebration the Jewish people would remember every year how they were enslaved in Egypt. Enslaved. And what does God do? He comes and he sets them free. Not so that they can just sort of like, ooh, I'm free, I can do whatever I want. That is not the point of the Exodus. They are set free so that they can now serve Yahweh. They can be Yahweh's people in the world, set free from the power of Pharaoh. And what Jesus is saying is, hey guys, I am going to initiate a new exodus through the cross. I am going to form a new people that are set free from the power of sin in the world. Follow me, trust me, be with me. Be my people in the world. And then he says, right? takes the bread, breaks it as his body will be broken on the cross. He says, this is my body. Take and eat. Trust me. Take me into you. He takes the wine and he pours it out and he's like, ah, just as my blood will be spilled on this cross. Take it. This is for the forgiveness of sins. I'm going to form a people that are set free from sin and addiction. Just as Moses and God were a part of setting free the people from slavery. Jesus does so much through the cross and we can't get through all of it. But it's really clear if you look at the arc of salvation history that he's fulfilling the covenant promise that he makes to Abraham. Right, He walks through the blood twice. It's clear through the scriptures that so much of that is because he wants to be with us. He wants to be in relationship with us. And we're enemies running astray and he's welcoming us back in. And he's setting us free from the sin that binds and enslaves us. He's providing an example through his death on the cross of how we are supposed to let go of our plan and our control and submit to the plan of the Father and live out the faithfulness God's invitation to us. Now the question is, okay, thank you for the seminary class, you know. It's like a fire hose. The question then is, so so what? Great, like, Appreciate that. How does this actually touch the ground in my everyday life? First, I would say this. Jesus died to forgive you. 
Now, I think there's two kinds of people in this room. I mean, obviously, there's lots more, but two in general. There's a group of people here today who know they need to be forgiven. I remember I was in my early 20s. And I had all this just guilt. I had all these things that I had done. I felt really kind of overwhelmed and almost haunted by it. Maybe you can relate. And I remember I built this like eight-foot cross out of wood. And I put it right by my door. And then I went, made a list of all the things I felt guilty and ashamed of. And every morning before I left my room, I would just sort of prostrate myself on my face in front of this cross. And I would go through one item on that list. And I would say, God, thank you, Jesus, that you forgive me. And that I do not have to be haunted by these things that I have done. I think some of us walk through life never having actually internalized the forgiveness of God. What would it be like for you to make that list and say, Jesus, thank you. I receive forgiveness for this thing I've done. And I think there's another group of us who are like, I don't need forgiveness. Cool story, but like, no one needs to walk through the blood for me. And I guess I would challenge you. Sit in the text of today. Sit in John 19, 16 through 42 every day this week and just ask the Spirit for conviction. Maybe God will help you see the things you actually need forgiveness for. I'm not here to tell you, this is it. You know, I don't have a word of knowledge. But my experience is that if we humble ourselves before God and invite Him to speak into our lives, He tends to honor that prayer. Two, God forgives us. God also died to be with us. One of the things that I think we miss sometimes, uh, particularly in the world of the bridge diagram, but also just like in general, sometimes we feel like our relationship with Jesus is about a ticket to heaven. It's about avoiding hell. And I, and I think there's validity to that, but I think there's more. I think if you look at the New Testament, what it says is eternal life starts now. Not when you die, right? Because eternal life is defined by our connection to God, which begins as we encounter him, as God encounters us, we begin this point of relationship and reconciliation that God wants us to experience the amazing part of our relationship with God now, not just in the future. But I think sometimes we forget that. We forget that God actually wants to pull up on the pew next to us. He wants to, you know, when you get out of bed with your cup of coffee, he wants to sit down next to you and just be with you. Right? He wants to go on a walk with you. He wants to do the laundry with you. He wants to be with you. He is like a father who loves you so much that he would run through the town to hug you and welcome you in. And I guess I would just lean in a little bit today to say, when you look at your time with God, do you see it that way? Do you see God as a father who wants to be with you? Or do you find the spiritual life sort of just about doing things for God? Or about sort of going through your checklist? And I guess I would challenge you this morning that one of the things that Jesus accomplishes on the cross is he destroys all barriers between us and the father so that today, 
you can live in the presence of God. What would it look like for you to lean into that reality? And lastly, I want to say that Jesus died to set you and me free. This happens 2,000 years ago on a cross. Jesus dies to break the power of sin so that we can live into flourishing, that we can experience the goodness and life of God. And yet, I know that many of us are trapped in cycles of addiction and sin, and we feel stuck. And I guess on a practical note, I, you know, we can't get into all of that, but I just would say this. If you, haven't, if you haven't in a while or recently just repented and turned back to God and said, God, I need help. I am stuck. I would invite you to do that before celebrating communion today or entering into worship. Just as a way of saying, God, I need your help. I see it too. And second, I would say this. Don't just stop there. Actually tell another human being that can help you to actually practice the way of Jesus and not live oppressed by that slavery to sin, to distraction, to whatever it is. Tell someone else because justification, right? This theological term, how we get right in relationship with God can happen in a pew right now. Sanctification happens in community. That is how we become shaped into the image of God, happens in community with other people holding our hand, praying for us and helping us move forward because we cannot do it alone. Jesus transforms us from the inside out when we turn our lives and our heart over to him. And then he entrusts us to the community with the Holy Spirit to try and work it out day by day in all of our brokenness. Jesus on the cross makes that transformation possible. Now, I thought it was appropriate, uh, given the subject matter, to also celebrate communion today. And on the night Jesus was betrayed just before he was crucified and would die on a cross, he was at a meal with his friends, and he grabbed a piece of bread and he broke it and he gave thanks for it. And he said, this is my body which will be broken for you. Take it. Eat it. And he took a cup filled with wine. And he said, this is my blood, which will be shed for you so that your sins may be forgiven. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to have an opportunity to experience the forgiveness of Jesus. We're going to have an opportunity to choose Jesus afresh and again to say, Jesus, I want you. I receive your gift of what you accomplished on the cross. I would invite you before you come up just to have a moment of prayer with God. Just say, you know, maybe you've swerved a little bit. Just say, you know, God, I know I'm not perfect. These are the ways that I think I'm sort of going off the deep end. Uh, help me. If you're serving communion, if you could come forward, that would be great. And then if the worship team wants to come up. The way we're going to do this is we're going to try something a little different today. I'm going to invite 
Uh, as worship's going, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to invite just the first half of the church to come forward to avoid sort of our logjam problems. Um, or on this side, if you want to just come forward right away, as soon as someone's up there, feel free. And then if you're in the back half, maybe just wait until the logjam stops, and then when you see a sort of a free lane, feel free to dive in. Let me pray for us, um, and we'll lean in. Holy Spirit, we ask for your presence to show up in power this morning. Jesus, we want to experience the life that you make possible through your death on the cross. Jesus, we want to experience the freedom, the victory that you accomplished through the cross. We want to experience the breaking of bondage that some of us are trapped in. God, we want to experience the hug of the Father that we have longed for, for so long. God, we want to experience forgiveness. We want to experience freedom. We want to experience you. God, meet us in communion. Meet us in worship. Come, Lord Jesus. Jesus.